My name is Josh McLean. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to be worshiping with you this morning. I'm going to preach a message this morning entitled, The God of Living Water. The God of Living Water. I'll tell you a little bit as we get into the beginning about uh, some funny situations. There's all types of stories out there about folks who didn't realize the true value of the possessions that they had. And oftentimes the stories include people giving things away, involve them putting things in a box and taking them down to their local um, goodwill and dropping them off. One such lady did that. She dropped off a computer, an old computer that she thought was worthless. And uh, she thought it was just a piece of junk. She left it at the Goodwill. And they immediately tried to get in contact with this lady but couldn't figure out the reason why. It was an Apple One computer. The first computer really ever made by Apple. It was worth $200,000. They felt guilty to take this computer and not give her some of the proceeds. She didn't know what she had given away. And so they put an ad out trying to reach this lady. Goodwill has a little bit of Goodwill, right? So they're trying to reach this lady and help her out and let her know, hey, this is what you've done. So far, no one has come forward. If you know the lady, let her know about it. And if you are that lady, I encourage you to tithe. I'm going to teach on this. I'm just kidding. Uh, Also, not long ago at a Phoenix Goodwill, a a man was just perusing the aisle there. And he found this, what appeared to be a cheap uh, watch to everybody else. But to him, he knew exactly what it was. This $5.99 watch he actually knew was valued at well over $30,000. In fact, he was able to sell it for $35,000. He has a picture on the internet with him holding the watch that he had bought at the Goodwill and a receipt for $5.99. And another receipt demonstrating how much he had sold it for on the internet. So I don't tell you these stories to get you all excited about how you can become a treasure hunter here in Hagerstown and you can just consider right now and for the rest of the morning how you can go hit up all of the yard sales on your way home and that's not what I want to bring this to your attention for but the reason why I want to bring it to your attention is because the point is this, many of, many of us, if not all of us, have possessions in our life that we undervalue, that we don't truly understand the, the worth and the impact that it can have in not just our lives, but in the lives of those around us. And we will oftentimes abandon these valuable things at no cost. In our passage of Scripture this morning, this is what we're going to see. We're going to see a, a, a group of people that didn't understand the value of what they had, and they overlooked it. And the item that they overlooked is infinitely more valuable than any watch or computer You see, the Israelites had forgotten just how valuable their personal relationship with the Lord truly was as they left the Lord and they went after other gods, so-called. They didn't understand what they had left behind. They didn't understand the value of that. They had forgotten it. Perhaps it wasn't taught to them. Perhaps they didn't even know. That warning goes out across the, the crowd this morning as we consider the men, the fathers in this room. Are you teaching those in your family? Are you teaching your children? What what valuable thing in your life have you neglected or overlooked? Are you similar to to the Israelites? Are you to be found this morning worshiping other gods and committing truly heinous acts, forgetting the real worth of God Almighty? 
Jeremiah, he was a prophet of the southern tribes of Judah, and he prophesied that at the end of the kingdom of Judah, there, he, he prophesied about the end of Israel as well. He was sent by God to warn the other nations about the coming and destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And his book covers the deportation and the exile. And overall, his message that God, is, that God gives him is twofold. Throughout the whole book, we see this theme, both destruction and hope. Destruction and hope. We also see this theme of tearing down and then building up. Destruction and hope, tearing down and building up. And that's the general idea of Jeremiah, of the book of Jeremiah. And it's a large section, it's a large book this morning. And I hate to just jump into one spot, but that's what we're going to do this morning. And we're going to be focusing in on the destruction side. We're going to be focusing on the tear down side. You might think, well, that's a terrible thing for God to do. I believe that as we look at the scriptures this morning, that we'll realize that God is merciful to us in the fact that he would tear something down and that he would strike things down and that he would even bring destruction upon his people. It's a, it's a great mercy of his that he would extend that to his people. I want to jump in this morning without any further ado to Jeremiah chapter 2. We'll read from verse 1 all the way down to, chapter, or to verse 19. rather. So verse number 1 it says, The word of the Lord came to me saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem... Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest, and all who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in the land of the deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells? Where is the Lord? I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. When you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. And the priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal and went up after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their gods. They have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Is Israel a slave? Is he a home-born servant? Why then has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are ruined without inhabitant. Moreover, 
The men of Memphis and Tamphanes have shaved the crown of your head. And have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now, what do you do by going, or what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you. And your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me this morning? God, this is a heavy text. And yet it's not out of line. As we consider the the plight of your people, the choices that they had made, we recognize as they've spurned you, disobeyed, disregarded your covenant with them, we see that this is fitting. God, this morning, as we look on at this scenario and this story as it unfolds, we pray that we wouldn't be found to the wayside, that we would recognize that we are this people, that we ourselves have done this very same thing. We've considered you, we've weighed you, and we've found you wanting in our minds. We've been guilty of going after worthless things and in effect becoming worthless. God, we pray that you'd forgive us for this. And that this morning as we come to this room and to this table, so to speak, thirsty, that we would be filled as you've promised us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. I'm going to say this right after we finish our reading this God's people are prone to wander. God's people are prone to wander. There's a song, and it says that very thing. And I'm sure that you with that song can say, I feel it. I feel that desire to wander, to look somewhere else for something that I need, even though we we have no need. God's people look to the world for value and for sustenance, yet only find, listen, evil and pain. When we turn away from the Lord and we go to the world, we find evil and we find pain. And as we saw in Isaiah last week, each and every one of us have gone our own way. We've led each other astray. And yet it's in Christ alone that we find a true shepherd. A true shepherd that can rally the sheep and draw them back and lead them back to God. And he alone, Jesus himself alone, will lead his people to streams of living water. As we consider this text and how heavy it is, recognize this, that there is destruction, yes, but there is hope. And before God will build up, he must tear down. And so I hope that you come to the word this morning looking for that, to be torn down and subsequently built back up because that is the work of the Lord and that is what he desires to do in us this morning. So we're prone to wander just like Israel. We forget how valuable God really is to us. We, we think valuable 
I think it's really an understatement. We could even say that God is valuable. How can we even measure God? Is there a metric? Is there a comparison at all? We don't realize that it's of all the things that he's done for us. We oftentimes forget them. He looked for us when we weren't looking for him. He chose us and he pursued us while we were running. And our story is like that of the Israelites. As we walk through this passage, no doubt you'll see some similarities of the people of Israel and you and your own family. And as we do walk through this passage, I want to just give you four sections that I've broken it up into, or that I see. And they're this, the wedding, the wandering, the wounds, and the water. And yes, you're welcome for the W's. So the wedding, the wandering, the wounds, and the water. I want you to jump in and begin with me in verse number one. And we'll read down to three and look at the wedding. So I call it the wedding because of the language here in these verses. It makes it sound like it's a proverbial honeymoon between God and his people. God there is reminiscing and he's talking about his relationship with his people there at the beginning. And it sounds like a marriage. He says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. How you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. It has this beautiful romantic picture of Israel that is just in love with her husband, in love with her beau. And she says, whatever, wherever, I'll, I'll follow you wherever you want to go. She's not scared at all. As it says here, Israel follows God. It follows Yahweh out into the desert where nobody lives, where it's not safe. And we think, of course she should do that. Of course, it's God. Well, don't forget, Egypt, while they were slaves there, it was a beautiful place. It was a place where they did not go hungry. And they had homes and they had protection to some degree. And here Yahweh was calling them out into the wilderness and Because of their love and their devotion to God, they follow him. This is interesting. The Hebrew word behind devotion here is that same word that we've looked at many times in the last six months, and that's hesed. It's that word of God's faithfulness, his faithful love. And what's odd is it's every other time that we've seen that and talked about it here in this room, it's been God's faithfulness, God's devotion, God's love, steadfast love towards his people. And this time it's speaking of God. Yahweh's people's devotion to Yahweh. So there was a time in the life of the children of Israel where they were fully devoted to him. Consider the time there at the base of Mount Sinai. They're not afraid. Wholly devoted. At least that's how she started. Israel loved her husband, Yahweh, As a young bride. How did she prove her love? Well, she followed him boldly into the wilderness. Almost sounds like a bit of a hopeless romantic, right? Israel. God called and pursued her. He provided for her and she loved him for it. In honor of you fathers out there, I want to ask the mothers, what what was it about your husband that you just thought was the best thing. Maybe it was his beard. Maybe it was his belly. (laughs) Any other hand signals out there? Whatever it was, 
There was something, mothers, that attracted you to that man that you thought was just wonderful and beautiful. Oftentimes we forget what it was that maybe attracted us to our spouse. As life gets hectic, we get distracted and we put other things on our plate. It's always helpful for us to remember that very thing that just made us attracted to our spouse. I think it's a pretty interesting thing that God is reminding his people, hey, there was a time when you were in love with me or you would have followed me anywhere. So while it might be helpful for you couples this morning to consider what it was that united you and brought you together, that, that caused you to fall into love, as it were, how much more helpful would it be for you to remember that relationship, that desire that you had for the Lord when you first came to him, when he first came to you and you first found him because he was seeking after you. What, what was it about God? What was it about Yahweh that, that got you excited, that warmed your heart, that brought tears to your eyes, but not sad tears, but tears of joy? What was it? Do you remember? Oh, you were much more ignorant then and unlearned and uneducated, and yet you had a passion for the Lord when you first came to him. Do you remember that? I think it would be useful for you this morning to consider that, to celebrate the attributes of our God and your heart towards him when you first came to him. Look there at verse 3, though. It says, Israel was holy to the Lord, the firstfruits of his harvest. And all who ate of, the, of it incurred guilt and disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. See, Israel belonged to the Lord. She was something holy, set apart for his enjoyment alone. And she was considered the first fruits of his harvest. And the law of first fruits that, that we've just read about is actually in Deuteronomy chapter 26. It declares that God should receive the first part of every harvest as an offering to him, recognizing that he is the one that gave us that produce, that he's the one that gave us that in, increase. So as a token of our gratitude, and in faith, celebrating that he will give us abundantly more than even what we've received there at the first, we give a sacrifice back to him. We give a portion back to him. And this is exactly what Israel was. You see, God was working in his promise. He was working the gospel here on earth. As he began to work in the children of Israel, and people came to him and came, and come into, came into covenant relationship with him, they were the first fruits, and they were holy to him, set apart. And we are the latter fruits. And here we have the first fruits, and God says, these are mine, holy to me. And anybody that touches them, they're going to be punished. It was a beautiful time. Again, hopeless romantics. But the summer often ends, doesn't it? And like a, in a, uh, as the, uh, similar to the way that John Travolta drops Olivia Newton-John when they go back to school and summer's over, right? And they go back to school. Honeymoon's over. Summer's ended. And they get down to real business. And that's where we see the wandering. So we see this wedding. It's a beautiful time. It's emotional. But then we see the wandering we begin to see the unfaithfulness unfold there in chapter 2, verses 4 to 13. We see it very clearly. God follows the previous section by asking a rhetorical question. He said, well, what wrong did your fathers find in me? After that, what happened? What, what's so bad about me that you'd leave me, God says? 
That you'd go after worthless things and become worthless in and of yourselves. God asks, is it something I said? Was it my breath? Am I wearing deodorant? What? He can't get over why they would leave him. Why would they abandon him? What were they lacking that they would need more from God? They begin to wander. They begin to look after other gods as if he is not enough. Adding other things into their life because Yahweh the one who provided all these things for him, for Israel, that walked them through the valley of the shadow of death and provided for them from sundry places in different manners, miraculously. Why was he not enough? What was he lacking? It says here that Israel chased after worthlessness, after vanity, and in that process became empty and vain herself. One translation puts it this way. She, she followed the delusion and became deluded. And you've heard the statement, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's a wonderful statement, and we hold tight to that, and it means something to us. And what we see here in this passage and what we've seen over the course of the last six months of, as we've walked through the scriptures and seen God's people is that they've done the, quite the opposite. They've given up what they can't lose to gain something that they cannot keep. This is the, this is the plight. This is what Israel has, ch- has chosen. They've wandered. They've become deluded. They're confused. They came into the land that God had promised and immediately forgot all that he had done for them, even the process that they had gotten there. They'd forgotten it all. It's almost like they had planned to do it, right? To forsake God as soon as they get what they wanted. Sounds so shady. And yet that's what they did. We often forget how much we need God, though. It's a tendency of humans to undervalue God and to overvalue stuff. To undervalue God and to overvalue stuff. We look for the, the meaning in our lives and purpose in our life and we hope to obtain safety and protection. And we look for all of these fulfillments in stuff. We look for it in relationships. We look for it in titles. We look for it everywhere but where God has called us to look and in the place that he has provided Oftentimes we want gifts and not the giver of gifts. You've heard that before. I'm going to ask you this morning, can that be said of you? Can that be said of you? That you want the gift and not the giver of the gift. Can it be said of you that just as soon as you receive the gift that God has given to you and brought you into the land, that you forget all those things and you drop him like a bad habit? Is that true of you? Let me ask this another way. Where in your life have you failed to see the value of Christ? Perhaps you're not just distracted this morning with the the cares and the belongings of this world, but maybe this morning you are undervaluing the work of Christ in your life, somehow thinking he is not enough and that you must add to it. You've got to go somewhere else to get something else to, to add to supplement God and the gospel And the work that Jesus did on the cross, is it possible that you are undervaluing Christ this morning? If you are, you're doing the very same thing that the children of Israel were doing. 
undervaluing the provision of God. It's wandering. You've forgotten the wedding, and now you wander. This section really gives us something to think about. In in verse 8, we see a dangerous situation. It says that the priests did not seek the Lord, and they didn't even know him. The priests did not seek the Lord, and they didn't know him. The shepherds, or the rulers, the political leaders, they were intentionally sinning against God, and the prophets taught and prophesied not by Yahweh, but by Baal. This is a bad situation. Almost immediately when they... When they move into the, to the land, right? It's a sad commentary, and it's true. Full-on corrupt. Israel wayward with evil rulers and leaders. Bad shape. And yet God engages them there in their rebellion and in their unfaithfulness. And again, we don't want to park there. I want to move quickly, but just consider the importance of leadership, of godly leadership in the life of the believer In the life of God's people, God has providentially chosen that he would use some of his people to lead. And how important is it that we lead in the way that he has led us? Imagine, fathers, as as Brett said a moment ago, are we leading in our homes? Wives, are we leading in our homes? You might say, I don't know if I'm leading anybody. You are. There's not a person in here that doesn't have somebody looking to you in some informal possibly way. They're they're looking to you for leadership. And they're taking cues from you. And can it be said of you that you do not know the Lord, neither do you seek him? And that you don't prophesy or teach by Yahweh, but instead you, you teach by Baal. Some other worldly method or ideology. Can that be said of you? I would hope not. Verse 9, though, it says, Therefore I still contend, this is the Lord speaking, I still contend with you, and with your children's children I will contend. Now think of that word contend. I want to share two things about it. One, it's a legal action that Yahweh is taking against his people. He's presenting a formal complaint against his people. Contend, it's used of a plaintiff presenting his case in court. He's bringing charges against his people. I will contend. But not just with the people of this generation, but all the children of the promise, those who have not even been born yet, he says, I will contend with them. And this is how our God responds to those who are in covenant with him but are wayward. This is how he responds. He will engage and he will discipline her. And isn't that beautiful that God would discipline, not out of anger, Not out of hatred, but out of love. Listen, when we are unfaithful, he is faithful. And he disciplines us. And he draws us back to him. He he crushes and then he builds up. He destroys and then he offers hope. That's his mercy to us. It's beautiful. Verse 13, it paints a vivid picture of exactly what Israel has done. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God says, they've sinned, they've transgressed, and yet I'm going to bring this, I'm going to contend with them. I'm going to bring this charge against them, but I'm also going to discipline them. I'm going to love them in this. God's desire for his people as he disciplines us is to bring us to a place of maturity. 
as you wayward children of the promise stray from the Lord, he disciplines us and he, in love, draws us back to himself. Even when we commit these same two evils, forsaking him, the fountain of living waters, and digging out cisterns, our own sources of water that are broken, the covenant nation is transgressed on these two accounts. God describes himself as the fountain of living waters, the, the fountain of living waters. Instead of accepting a salvation based on grace, the children of Israel then prefer to, to gain one through their own works. And they dig out for themselves something basically worthless idols, worthless pathways that are unable to be effective and to meet their deep spiritual needs. They act as band-aids. They cover up. They're deep down cracked cisterns that cannot hold water and are ineffective. You may not realize this, but water is precious. Very precious. I say that seriously. We may not realize that. We live in a world today where you can get water anywhere. In your home, we turn the knob on. And some of us complain because it doesn't smell the best, but it's water and we can drink it. And it won't kill us. Do you know 97.3 of the world's waters is ocean water and unfit for drinking? 97%. And of the 2.7% of water that is fresh, over three quarters are at the two poles, uninhabitable. We can't get to it. And a large portion of the other quarter is trapped underground, deep underground, unable to reach it. And so that means that of 100% of the water, only 0.36% is available for drinking as humans. 0.36%. And that's found in rivers, lakes, and swamps. Rivers, I might drink after out of a river. Lake, maybe, depending. Swamp, ain't no way. Right? So even after that, out of that 0.36, there's not much even in there that we would even drink out of. One of the greatest dangers for humans today is the water that we drink. We don't, again, we don't struggle with that, but so many families around the world have to deal with this every single day with whether they will have water that is fresh enough to drink that will actually be able to sustain life. Imagine living in the first century, how much worse it would have been then. In the 7th century BC or the 6th century BC, it's a difficult time. Every landowner would want to have living water, which is flowing water. On his property. And he would, maybe even with that flowing spring, he would try to dig a cistern close by that he could then get inside and plaster and make it to where it would hold water. When the rain would come, he would hold in that cistern. The cisterns would oftentimes in the limestone, they would develop cracks. And the water that was very, very precious to them would just leak out. That's a bad day for dad. Happy dad turns into crabby dad real quick when the cistern's broken and there's no water. Why? Because water sustains life. And so it's very important. And here Israel, who had full access to Yahweh, had a stream of living water coming right to them. They abandon it. They forsake it. And they go to dig their own cistern, a cistern that cannot hold water. 
one that's broken. Unable to do anything for them spiritually. They're in a bad place. A very dangerous position. God says, you've done two terrible things. You abandoned the best situation, flowing water, and you dug out cisterns that won't hold water. My question for you this morning is, in what ways have you wandered from God? Practically speaking, maybe you've abandoned your personal time with Him. That used to be important to you. Back in the honeymoon stage, in that phase, it was something that you'd never miss. This is not a legalistic question. I think it's worth asking, is, is that something that's valuable to you today? The very thing that provides life for us in the Word of God, is it something that we've abandoned? If so, we need to get back to it. Not only is it an evil thing, but it's a terrible thing. It's a painful thing for us as we go through this life without this living water. And just a really base level, how many times have we forsook God's word and time with him and dug a cistern called Netflix? We traded one for the other. Maybe it's not Netflix. Maybe it's some hobby or what. I, I don't know what it is. But on just a really simple level, God's calling us to, this morning to see, to know and to see this is sin. This is unhealthy. This is damage on ourselves as we abandon, forsake this stream of living water. Maybe you feel this morning prone to wander. Prone to wander. Prone to leave the God you love. Prone to abandon living water and attempt to dig out new cisterns in other places. If you feel that pool this morning, You're among brothers and sisters who feel it as well. You're not alone. We've got to talk about that. We've got to confess that desire. We've got to admit that. To bring it into the light. Mirage can be a dangerous thing. It, It looks like something valuable and yet it's worthless. To us it's just a neat thing to see. But again, we're the minority. I want you to imagine a man walking through a desert. When he's found himself in a small oasis, he finds relief. He had been looking for water for some time now. He was in bad shape. And now, because of the spring and because of the oasis and because of the edible vegetation and some fruit that's growing there, he has found health. He's found safety. Everything that he needs for life is in that oasis. And yet, he's not satisfied to stay. He feels the need and the desire to move on. He'd been dying to find such a place, and yet now he's found it and wants to leave it. As he looks out across the the horizon, he notices many small pockets of water and realizes, maybe I'm in a safer area now. Maybe this oasis isn't the only one out here. There's other pockets as well. Therefore, there'll be other, other food and fruit for me safety out there and so he sets out and it's not long before he realizes that the water pockets continually move on and farther and he never actually reaches them begins to get concerned and realizes that he's made a grave mistake as he turns around to find his oasis from time before he's lost his trail and he can't return this is a silly story but it happens all too often both physically and spiritually physically speaking when we talk about dehydration stage one is this thirst 2% of your water has been depleted. 
When thirst kicks in, your body clings to all remaining moisture. Your kidneys send less water to your bladder. It darkens your urine. You sweat less. Your body temperature rises. Your blood becomes thicker and sluggish. That's thirst. 2%. Stage 2 of dehydration is fainting. That's 4% of your liquids, of your fluids are, are gone. And the effects on your body are this. Your blood is so concentrated that the resulting, de- uh, the resulting decrease in blood flow makes your skin shrivel. Your blood pressure drops, making you prone to fainting. You've basically stopped sweating, and without this coolant, you start to overheat. It's not that hard to, to get to this stage. It can happen in one day, easy. Depending on the temperature and how much you've sweat that day, it's, none of us are far from it. That's stage two. Stage three is this, organ damage. It's only 7% of your fluids lost and not been replenished. Your body's having trouble maintaining blood pressure. To survive, it slows down flow to the non-vital organs such as kidneys and the gut, causing damage. Without your kidneys filtering your blood, cellular waste quickly builds up, and you're literally dying for a glass of water. You're dying for a glass of water. That's stage three. Imagine walking through this, living this very sentence, that paragraph, dying for a glass of water. Stage four is death. Water loss, 10%. That's it. Just 10%. You got plenty more fluids left. Just 10% lost. You need to drink some water and fast. If it's hot outside, your uncontrollable body temperature means your vital organs risk everything. Liver failure will probably kill you, but if conditions are mild, toxic sludge builds up in your blood, and your coroner's report will likely read kidney failure. Church mirages tempt us to abandon God. There are empty promises of pleasure and greater joy and greater satisfaction. And they bring damage on us. It's danger. And the truth is this, that when we wander from God, when our thirst is not satisfied and quenched in the Lord, we wander away and there we get wounded. Ultimately, death. So let's look at the wounds. Verses 14 to 19, they describe the effects of Israel's wandering, and it's not good. Especially 19, it's it's very clear. 19, it says, your evil will chastise you, and your apostasy, your backsliding, your turning away, it will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. You see, it's easy to follow the flow of God's argument against Judah and against all of Israel. He says, you were devoted to me, and then you rejected my provision and looked elsewhere. You weren't satisfied. And as a consequence, Israel has become food for the lions, it says. Very, the, the lions have destroyed them. They've been drawn into compromising and dangerous allies of Egypt. And they're backsliding and apostasy, described in verses 4 through 13. They lead to the description of the evil consequences referred to in 14 to 19. One leads to the other. When they wander, they end up becoming harmed and left. Not only have they abandoned the very provision of God, but they've abandoned the protection of God. And perhaps that's you this morning. This is you. You've been wounded. You have wounds this morning. Spiritually speaking, maybe you're in stage three of dehydration. And you feel the pain. You look to God and you say, why? What's happening? What's going on? 
Is it possible that the reason why you're struggling and that you feel pain this morning is because you have abandoned God? You've abandoned the flowing river of water, the waters of life. If that's you this morning, realize this, that he is calling to you. He's calling out to you. Perhaps you can hear him shouting in your pain, return, come to me. I'll take your burdens. I'll give you rest. I'll give you water. You won't thirst again. Notice the, the, indicative, or the imperatives here are that we know and see. That we know and see that it is evil and bitter to forsake the Lord. Not only is it evil, it's wrong, but it's bitter. Bitter is to say that it's painful. When we, when we rebel against the Lord, when we go our own ways, it is painful. Church, listen, we are called to remind We're called to rehearse, to admit, to sing, to pray, to encourage, to preach to one another. And you may say, I've heard it all before. Do I really need to hear those things again? Do I need to hear them regularly? Had another been at the oasis with that man, they could have told him, that's a mirage. There's nothing more out there but what you're experiencing right here. That's That's the role of the church in the life of a Christian. We remind one another. We preach the gospel to each other. We encourage one another to stay, fight the, fight the good fight. Think of Orpheus. He's employed by Jason. He's that great singer and musician. Jason has him as they pass the island with the sirens. He says, play and sing as loud as you can, as beautiful as you can. Orpheus begins to play and to sing. And in that old fable, the, the sirens are drowned out. And the lies cannot be heard because the truth is ringing out louder and louder. And because of it, the men are saved. It's a picture of the church in a a way. As we see the mirages, as we we hear the, the temptations whispered in our ear that there's something more, there's more satisfaction in another place, the church encourages itself. Encourage one another. No, there's nothing more. Jesus is all we need. Jesus is enough. You may be thinking this morning, Pastor Josh, is there any other message that you have? It seems like in the last six months we've basically heard the same message every Sunday. I, I think that. I, my mind is, goes back to the old story of Martin Luther, and he's asked by one of his parishioners, Pastor, why is it that week after week after week all you ever preach to us is the gospel? And Luther wittingly responds, well, because week after week... You forget it. Because week after week, you walk in here like a people who don't believe the gospel. And until you walk in looking like people who are truly liberated by the gospel and the truth of it, I'm going to continue to preach it to you. That's not my message this morning. I believe that we are, in many ways, embracing the gospel this morning, but this is a truth and This is the only message that we have as a church. The gospel. That Jesus is extending to us an invitation to drink of this living water. Israel was plagued with leaders that were not helping the situation. They themselves had forgotten God and were leading the people to sin. Those shepherds, those rulers, led folks away from the water. And here's where we find the hope 
One day, as Revelation 7 says, Jesus himself will lead us to the living water. Revelation 7, 16 says this, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Listen to this, verse 17. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He'll be their shepherd. He'll be their ruler. He'll be their priest. He'll be their prophet. And he will guide them to springs of living water. What a beautiful thing. What a beautiful truth. That he will guide us to springs of living water. And listen to this. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Every tear. That's a promise. That's a wonderful promise this morning. That one day, Jesus, the good shepherd, will lead his people to streams of living water. He will be their shepherd. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I read that, I think, well, he's wiping the the tears, the sincere tears of those Christians who are just brokenhearted about all the bad things that have happened in the world, not that they've done, or that, that, not that they've been a part of, but they're so brokenhearted for this brokenness in the world. That's not actually what's taking place here. You see, the tears that these people are crying, that the lamb will wipe away, that the shepherd will wipe away, are tears of guilt and tears of shame and, listen, tears of pain. Of all the mistakes that they've made, all the poor choices, all the times that they have forgotten their love and wandered, that pain, when they see their shepherd, when they see their lamb, when they wash their, white, their clothes white in the lamb's blood, they will feel the pain of all the things that they've done against their creator, against their lamb, against their shepherd, and he will come to them and he will wipe the tears from their eyes. And what a great place to park just for a moment. Maybe this morning you're not just so enamored with the world and that's why God is not enough because you're just so attracted to all the sinful things and distractions in this world. Maybe that's not you. Maybe this morning your distraction, your undervaluing and misunderstanding is that you think Jesus is not enough or that you think that Jesus won't accept you and he won't wipe away your tears or cleanse your stains because you've not been sincere enough, because you've not suffered enough or because you chose poorly too many times. If that's you this morning, then you have a deep misunderstanding of the love and grace of the said that is extended to God's people. You see, he is enough, and he will wipe every tear away from our eyes. Even the tears of pain that we cry because of things that we've brought on ourselves and that we've caused. You see, the sin of those people there, it was a personal sin, it was a willful sin, and yet the shepherd still led them. The shepherd still disciplined them and he still washed away their sin and wiped away their tears. Church, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. God doesn't only receive those who haven't completely messed up their lives, that weren't total wrecks. Those are the ones he receives. No, he receives those who again and again wander. He receives those who are his. Is there a more stirring scene or picture than a loving father tenderly wiping away the hot tears of pain and embarrassment and repentance that are found on the cheek of a, of a, of a child. You'd be hard-pressed. What's more beautiful than that? And so as we close, my questions, questions to you are this. Have you found that relationships, cars, homes, success, money, and even puppies, 
don't fill or satisfy? Have you found that to be true? They don't. Nothing. Christ truly satisfies. Do you desire more in life than what you have now? What? As a people of God, what more can be added to you? Have you struggled this week to be satisfied? Have you wandered long enough? Have you strayed long enough? Have you done without long enough? Checking the broken cistern to see if it's holding water and it's not. Are you thirsty this morning? Do you see your sin and your addiction for what it really is? Something that takes from you and doesn't put in. A broken cistern not able to hold water. It's leading you to certain death. If you answer yes to those questions, then my invitation, Jesus' invitation to you this morning is this, to come to him and drink of this living water. Church, when God's people do, when they come to him, they are satisfied. And yet we're prone to wander. We look to the world for value and for sustenance, yet we only find evil and pain. And in Christ alone do we find a true shepherd that can lead us back to God. And he alone leads us to the living water. Would you pray with me this morning? Jesus, we make much of you. As the true shepherd... You would extend mercy to us. You would extend grace, even though we wander, even though we stray, even though in our actions we say that you're not enough. You still engage and you discipline and you correct. God, were you like us? You would wipe your hands clean and walk away, not to engage, not to contend, and yet you do. God, this morning, we pray that you would contend with your people, that you would crush us. God, that you would smash the altars and the idols that are in our hearts. Father, that you'd stop us, that you'd reach your crook out, and that you'd hook us, and that you'd pull us back into the fold, back to the streams of living water where we've strayed from you. God, use your word this morning to do that. Spirit, would you do that? God, we know that in your light, we see light. We pray again that you would give that to us this morning. We look at our lives and we consider what you're calling to us to change, what you're leading us to change, what you're working in us. We pray that we would see clearly. Jesus, we look forward to the day when we are no longer prone to wander. We're no longer thirsty. We're no longer fickled. We're no longer confused. And we no longer see poorly, but we see very clearly. And we see you face to face. We drink of the living waters in your presence. We pray that you would sustain us until that day. And we ask that this be done in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing this first verse.